The sermon text this morning is from 1 Samuel chapter 18, verses 1 through 30. As soon as he had finished speaking to Saul, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David, and Jonathan loved him as his own soul. And Saul took him that day and would not let him return to his father's house. Then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as his own soul. And Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him and gave it to David and his armor and even his sword and his bow and his belt. And David went out and was successful wherever Saul sent him, so that Saul sent him, set him over the men of war. And this was good in the sight of all the people and also in the sight of Saul's servants. As they were coming home, when David returned from striking down the Philistine, the, woman, the women came out of all the cities of Israel, singing and dancing, to meet King Saul with tambourines, with songs of joy, and with musical instruments. And the women sang to one another as they celebrated, Saul has struck down his thousands, and David his ten thousands. And Saul was very angry, and this saying displeased him. He said, They have ascribed to David ten thousands, and to me they have ascribed thousands? And what more can he have but the kingdom? And Saul eyed David from that day on. The next day, a harmful spirit from God rushed upon Saul, and he raved within his house while David was playing the lyre, as he did day by day. Saul had a spear in his hand. And Saul hurled the spear, for he thought, I will pin David to the wall. But David evaded him twice. Saul was afraid of David, because the Lord was with him, but had departed from Saul. So Saul removed him from his presence and made him a commander of a thousand. And he went out and came in before the people. And David had success in all his undertakings, for the Lord was with him. And when Saul saw that he had great success, he stood in fearful awe of him. But all Israel and Judah loved David, for he went out and came in before them. Then Saul said to David, Here is my elder daughter Merib. I will give her to you for a wife. Only be valiant for me and fight the Lord's battles. For Saul thought, Let not my hand be against him, but let the hand of the Philistines be against him. And David said to Saul, Who am I and who are my relatives? my father's clan in Israel, that I should be son-in-law to the king. But at the time when Merib, Saul's daughter, should have been given to David, she was given to Adriel, the Meholathite, for a wife. Now Saul's daughter, Michal, loved David. And they told Saul, and the thing pleased him. Saul thought, let me give her to him, that she may be a snare for him, and that the hands of the Philistines may be against him. Therefore Saul said to David a second time, You shall now be my son-in-law. And Saul commanded his servants, Speak to David in private and say, Behold, the king has delight in you, and all his servants love you. Now then, become the king's son-in-law. And Saul's servants spoke those words in the ears of David. And David said, Does it seem to you a little thing to become the king's son-in-law, since I am a poor man and have no reputation? And the servants of Saul told him, Thus and so did David speak. Then Saul said, Thus shall you say to David, The king desires no bride price except a hundred foreskins of the Philistines, that he may be avenged of the king's enemies. Now Saul fought to make David fall by the hands of the Philistines. And when his servants told David these words, 
it pleased David well to be the king's son-in-law. Before the time had expired, David arose and went along with his men and killed 200 of the Philistines. And David brought their foreskins, which were given in full number to the king, that he might become the king's son-in-law. And Saul gave him his daughter Michal for a wife. But when Saul saw and knew that the Lord was with David, and that Michal, Saul's daughter, loved him, Saul was even more afraid of David. So Saul was David's enemy continually. Then the commanders of the Philistines came out to battle, and as often as they came out, David had more success than all the servants of Saul, so that his name was highly esteemed. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Let us pray. Father, as we attend to your word, as we attend to the witness of David's life, we pray that you would send your spirit upon us in the measure that you sent it upon David, or that you would be with us, and that in this moment you would open our eyes and our ears and make us alive to your gospel as you present it to us in your word. Lord, be with us now. We ask this all in the name of Jesus. Amen. Good morning. It's great to be with you again after a, a weekend away. Uh, delighted to be back here uh, with you this morning. That weekend away was seeing some friends. I'll get to that in a moment. But uh, uh, friends that God has richly provided in my life and um, uh, it was a grand time to be with them. We do this about once a year. Wednesday, after returning, though, I was with another friend that uh, I didn't go to college with, but I worked alongside 15 years ago in Charlottesville, Virginia. Bob Osborne and I were on the same church staff. Um, our, we've gone different directions, and right now Bob is serving as the executive director for Surge Ministries, uh, formerly World Harvest. Some of you may have heard of that work. And uh, for a while, Bob has been on the, f on the front end of leading and serving, and he pays attention. One of the things Bob <clears throat> has said as we talked, as we walked through Crockett Park Wednesday morning, was this reality that he has observed that um, I can validate as well, and maybe you can too. Leaders, whether they are ministry leaders or other leaders, often drink a poisonous cocktail of isolation and narcissism. He's watched that. He's lived some of it himself, and he's sounding that as, as an alarm and as a, a note of, uh, to pay attention to. That's something that can be true of a lot of people, but it is often true of leaders. In isolation and narcissism bleed together into a poisonous cocktail with destructive results. We're going to see a little bit of that in the text right here. But the reason that as we walk into this, I want you and with me to recognize that it's not just leaders, is it? Here's Bob's comment. When leaders focus on their own success, the natural outcome is a 
self-consumed life. Their fighting, it seems, to be approved and to prove to others that they are successful. Does that sound familiar? Maybe so. Uh, Self-consumed, fighting to be approved and to prove to others that they are successful. So it's not just leaders that struggle with a performance-centered life. And that's why as we step into this, we're watching the making of a servant leader, but we're also watching alongside that the renovation of a human being. So you find yourself in this story. Servant leader in the making, human being renovated. But here's what God does, what we see in this episode, this narrative that is, was too long to cut anything out of. So 30 verses, we get this narrative picture of God moving into our stories, moving in, exposing and dismantling our idols or false gods, so that in, the, in this case, isolation and narcissism are shoved over into the shadows that you then have an ability to live a life of freedom, purpose, and joy that you never will until that happens. What we see as this story unfolds is we see, uh, uh, and here's the outline for where we're headed, we're going to see two realities that we always encounter in the making of a servant leader. Two realities. And then we're going to see two remedies that God always grants to those who look to him. Two realities, two remedies. (coughs) Here we go. The first is this. The first reality that we will encounter in the making of a servant leader or the renovation of the human life is that a friendship is a gift that everyone needs. That's what this story is about. I mentioned I went off to spend time with friends. These are friends from 1970s. We've been doing this once a year, at least. Those have been good friendships. One of those friends that we went to see has given his life to taking God's Word and making, putting it in ways that make God's Word stick through everyday items. Honey Word is the name of his work. He presented us with a copy of his latest work just last weekend. And I was intrigued to find that in his little gathering was 1 Samuel 18. And in watching this story, this friendship that this story is about, about David and Jonathan and their friendship and their commitment to one another, which we'll get to in a second, my friend writes it about like this way. Think of it this way. The true friends I gain are like a twin-engine plane. He's reading this for us children, (laughs) to hang on to that, to see a plane. And and true friends I gain are like a twin-engine plane. Then he goes on to unpack it. That twin-engine planes have two engines for two reasons. One, to fly faster and higher and farther. 
The second, to keep the plane in the air until it can land safely if one engine stops working. Great friends, he says, are like twin engine plane. They're heading in the same direction. The same things are important to them. And they help each other reach their goals. And if something bad happens to one, the other keeps the plane flying until they can safely get help. And David and Jonathan have that special kind of friendship that we read about here. A twin engine friendship that sees them through different difficulties. And if God gives you that special friend, he says, be sure to show God and your friend how thankful you are. Because twin engine friendships are rare. So take good care of them. That's his way of unpacking what we see unfolded here when, when Jonathan, apparently on the spur of the moment, makes a decision and a commitment that lasts for a lifetime. He's responding to what, as the story unfolds, who this man David has turned out to be. And, there's a, and, and the text says that their souls were knit together. That's really a remarkable picture, and it's unusual. Some of you, though, do have a friend where your souls are connected. You've had someone like that in your life that, that has come along and, and you've got so many things that play into it that there's, a, there's not a friendship that you have to work at, but there's a connection. And that's what has occurred here, apparently spur of the moment. But it's not just that either. <clears throat> Uh, what, what we have going on here is a friendship that, that leads to even what, what we read about as a covenant, a pledge, that we're, we want to continue this. This is worth maintaining. Those are the friendships that we sometimes <coughs> find that we might call twin-engine friendships. C.S. Lewis raises the bar a little bit, expands it in a helpful way, and some of you have read his work, Four Loves, which I would commend to you if you haven't. But in there, he talks about friendship in a similar way, in a fuller way, perhaps, where he writes, friendship arises out of mere companionship. It starts with companionship, and the friendship arises when two or more companions discover that they have in common some insight or interest or even taste which the others do not share and which till that moment each believed to be his own unique treasure or burden. The typical expression of opening friendship would be something like, what, you two? I thought I was the only one. You know, if you really love jazz and you discover someone else who loves jazz, there's a friendship that forms around jazz. What Lewis and my friend are actually pointing to is things bigger than, and broader and more enduring than jazz, although I'm a fan but something that is captivating and compelling and life-giving. That's the kind of friendship that David and Jonathan have for one another. Their soul connected, closer than a brother is the way Proverbs writes about this kind of friendship. A covenant that, that was more than just this stripping off of his clothes. That's what's going on there. He's giving to, to David his right to the throne. That's what's going on. Jonathan is the crown prince. And now David has appeared on the throne. He was, he was anointed as the king-in-waiting. He was appointed to be the deliverer. We read, heard that story just recently, the, the story of his deliverance of, from, with Goliath. 
So anointed king, appointed deliverer, and now he has risen in popularity. But it's not just that generosity spontaneous that we're watching Jonathan unfold because David is, is someone special here and Jonathan begins to see it. His, the gift of his armor and his robes was recognizing that this is not only the king that I would have been, he is supremely worthy. He is the one who is of great worth. And he steps aside that David steps in. Apparently, David won the hearts of people everywhere. They were writing songs about him. He was <coughs> the rising star that was one side of the picture of his universal approval because there was another side that while David was becoming significant and welcomed and applauded and embraced, there was another. You see, friendship is a gift that every servant needs, but opposition is a trial that every servant leader faces. The opposition in this case comes in the form of None other than Saul, the king. We read about it. It becomes clear as the story unfolds. He's watching this spill over. He's watching this rising tide of, of, an, of an unlikely candidate who became a successful deliverer and now is receiving the applause of the world. When Saul watches this, something begins to happen in Saul and it becomes clear over time that what happens in Saul is not only opposition, but an opposition fueled by destructive, murderous jealousy. We read about it here, and some translations use the word jealousy, some envy. If you were to ask 10 different people how to distinguish between jealousy and envy, you might get 10 different answers. But psychologists tend to find a common distinction, and it's this. Envy occurs, think about this. See if you don't recognize a part of this. Envy occurs when we lack a desired attribute enjoyed by another. We are envious as that car goes by. Or that home that we've just spotted. There is an envy of the something that someone else is enjoying that we are not. That's envy. Jealousy occurs when something we already possess, usually a special relationship, is threatened by a third person. Envy, they have it, I want it. Jealousy, I have it. And it's up for grabs. It's threatened. And it may be that it really is both. Because David's success was what Saul did not have. And what he did have, his throne, was at stake. I was helped, and maybe you will be, will be too, by some words from Don Carson, 
biblical, not psychologist, biblical scholar who drills down deep here to really unpack what's going on in this particular passage. And he says the kind of jealousy described right here between Saul and David, this episode that's unfolding, is terrible. It's terrible for a few reasons. One, it's grounded in an ugly self-focus, a self-focus without restraint. It's all about Saul. It, not for an instant does Saul begin to look at anything from the perspective of others, David's or Jonathan's. And ultimately, he cannot look at anything from God's perspective either. That's the, the self-focus without restraint. It belongs to a kind of self-centeredness that lies at the heart of all human sinfulness, but in its degree and intensity is so unrestrained that it simultaneously loses touch with reality and adopts the most elemental idolatry. He's grabbing for straws. He is out of control. And we've been there too. It's grounded in ugly self-focus without restraint. It's triggered by endless comparisons. You ever do that? Endless comparisons? Yourself with others when things work well, when they're going your way, when you look good, then that's one thing. When the comparisons leave you coming up short, it's another. Constantly measuring what's up and down. And the tragedy is that recognition leads to jealousy instead of repentance. It leads us right into this kind of thing that we look at Saul and you say, how could you get there, Saul? What's wrong with you? And then we find, wait, 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 wait. I'm a pretty good candidate for that myself. The jealousy that we see here is the kind that cannot tolerate competence in others. Can't tolerate competence in others. And even Christian leaders have made this blunder by surrounding themselves with others that won't threaten their role and make them look good and less bad. And so what they end up with is managing instead surrounding themselves with less than competent people trying to preserve an image or their own authority. They don't, of course, what ends up being is they become masters of incompetent administrations. It happens in the political arena. It happens in the commercial world. It happens in ministries. It is something that is a part of the human condition that comes our way unless and until we're paying attention to something grand and glorious and better. And that comes when we begin to see the two realities of friendship is needed and opposition is coming are met with something from God above, who says, into those realities, I step into the story with remedies that God always grants to those who look to him. The first is his presence. We read three times in this one chapter that the Lord was with David. In fact, Scripture is very careful to tie David's success to God's presence. They're wrapped together. They're hand in hand. The reason for David's success is this very thing, God's presence with him. 
we read about it, when we read about God's presence and God is with him, there's an echo of a thread that runs all throughout Scripture. And it's this. I will be your God. You will be my people. I will be with you. And this one chapter pointing to the fact that God is with David three times points us to a larger story of God is with his people. It's his presence that makes the difference. It is that reality. And even the word covenant, this covenant that, that Don, Jonathan and David form with one another, doesn't that echo a larger story of promise? Because it's not just two men who find in one another a friendship. There's a God who makes a covenant with his people and says, my presence, my covenant, my, my pledge to be with you in the midst of that opposition, in the midst of the life that you're trying to find your way in this world. We lose our way so often. We try to make life work out of this or that and prop ourselves up against things. And what God is saying all the time is, it's my presence. That life that you long for, that you were made for, you will find that nowhere else. The life that you pursue, the life that you're building, it may prop you up for a bit. But it will ultimately leave you hungry. It will leave you hurting. It will leave you missing because you are building a life around something that is ultimately hollow and short-lived. But God says... In the making of a servant leader, in the renovation of a human life, it starts right here. It starts with, I am with you. Presence. But it's not just that. It's not just the presence that comes as a gift. It's the favor that comes in the midst of trial. We see that in this text as well. There, these things are going on, and it's not simply God's presence, but it's his favor. <coughs> it's, it's this work that God is doing. He not only shows up, but he shows up in a favorable way for David. We read this, and God is in this. And in a striking and surprising way, we read in verse 10 that, that there was a harmful spirit from God that rushed on Saul. God is up to something, and he does something out of our categories. We, we have a question about that. God sending a harmful spirit upon Saul to, to orchestrate and to, and to shape this narrative. There's an interesting thing, almost an aside, but it's worth it for a moment. The Old Testament writers present a forthright portrait of God. They never question his divine perfection but they never hesitate to show readers truths about the character of God that may be hard to square at times with our sensibilities or expectations. God reveals himself not as we might want him to be, but as he is. And this is just a little curveball from the sidelines to try to figure out this very thing. At the very beginning of this book that we didn't read, um, in 1 Samuel 3, 
One of the things that we find is how God reveals himself, how he shows himself. In, first, in, in chapter 321, <coughs> Samuel is behind the scenes, the one. He's the one that's anointed, uh, put Saul in place. He's the prophet. And what we read in 1 Samuel 3 is this. The Lord appeared again at Shiloh, and the Lord revealed himself at Sh- to Samuel at Shiloh by the word of the Lord. That's how we know anything at all about who he is and who we are. That he reveals himself by his word. Saul missed the message. And we dare not. But the favor that comes in the midst of the trial comes in two forms. The first one right here in verses 10 and 11, Saul reaches for the, for the short-range military weapon that was always at hand, he reached for the spear and aimed it and threw it at David. David had become that kind of threat to him. Made out of wood, an iron head, used to fend off invading armies as they climbed the the city walls. Aimed at David from the king himself. That's the first trial. It's never happened to me. I hope it never does. There are other trials that we live, we face. And you can think about some right now. But God's favor comes to you in the midst of whatever the trial is that is taking center stage in your mind right now. God's favor comes to you in the midst of the trial. It's not just a spear, there's a snare. Saul recognizes there's a lot going on. Read read about it in verse 21 where, where he recognizes maybe I can clean this picture up by setting David up. He's the crown prince. That means the daughter of the king goes to the crown prince. And for some reason, the first likely suspect was given to another instead of the new crown prince. But here's Michael, who loves David. And Saul's watching this, and he says, i got an idea. The bride price. What if I set the bride price so high And then count on the law of averages at work that will will eliminate this threat to my throne and my popularity and my success by having David lost in battle. A hundred Philistines, David. That's the price. She's yours. But I need evidence. A hundred Philistines. David goes, brings back evidence for 200, wins the bride, and the snare unravels. Jonathan and David both recognize the spirit, Jonathan and Saul, sorry, both recognize the spirit of the Lord is with David. The text tells us that. Jonathan and Saul both recognize the Spirit of the Lord is with David. 
One embraces it, the other wars against it, and the rest of the book is a description of Saul's attempts more and more openly to get rid of David. But by the end, we see that nothing can separate the plan of God because it's not only Saul's malice that we find here, we find God's favor. So his presence and his favor show up. He provides friends. He helps us through the opposition. But you know what? What I found, what you found, is even the best of friends will sometimes let you down. That plane that I flew off in last week was an eight-seater. I didn't know that when I bought the ticket. And when I got off of that plane, after reading this little story about twin-engine planes, I climbed out of the plane and looked up and saw one engine. And I realized that it worked. We got where we needed. But what would have happened? The best of friends fall into that category sometimes. And that's why it's not just a David or a Jonathan that we need. What we need is a son of David. The true friend who is always faithful, who is always present. That's the friend that you need. And that's the friend that we find in the son of David who will never forsake you when friends may. He's not just a true friend. He's the true servant leader who took the spear that was yours. You see, friends don't measure up always, but neither do we. Never do we before a holy God. And so are we stuck? Oh, we're not stuck because they're one who was stuck. There were two spears <clears throat> intended for David. One from Goliath never left his hand. Two from Saul never hit its target. There were also two spears who penetrated the son of David. One a Roman soldier on Golgotha, checking to see how long this life would last. But another spear, not from a jealous outgoing monarch, but from a righteous everlasting king. Not from the unholy character of a flawed leader named Saul, but the holy character of a heavenly father named Yahweh, who sent his own son and who said to David, David, your seed, your son, will be the one to take the spear aimed at you. Because David, you're flawed too. Every servant leader is flawed. Every human being renovated is flawed. And because I'm not, the Father says, and because I have a son who will, he, he takes the spear that is yours.
And he, in doing so, he makes the way for every servant leader who ever follows. Flawed though they are, belonging to Christ, clothed in his righteousness, leading the way, leading us into the very presence and favor of God based on, on the basis of the son of David's life, death, resurrection, promised sending of the Spirit and His ongoing intercession for us today and His one day return. The one who was David, anointed at Bethlehem, appointed deliverer, now highly esteemed in Saul's court, we read. All of that points us beyond David to the son of David. who was anointed, appointed, and esteemed. So Paul writes, Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ, son of David, is Lord to the glory of God the Father who comes to us as the true friend, as the true servant, gives us himself, gives us his name, and ushers us into that life in this world of freedom, of purpose, and joy that you will find nowhere else. Pray. <clears throat> Father, would you plow these things deeper into us that we might see more of the fullness of your beauty and your glory that our crying needs for you are met fully in the finished work of Christ. Open our eyes because we cannot to be able to taste and to see what is true, what is good, what is eternal. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.